I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Brigsby Bear. fine just hearing about it from us first. I don't think we're going to diminish your joy in seeing it. In fact, if anything, you might be able to lean into the themes a little more. Uh, this is part of our summer commission season, and unusually we have the backer guesting on the episode that they sponsored. We don't usually let people do that, but uh, they're one of our very favourite people, Name Chai Bitti. Hello, Name. Hey, I thought that by paying you guys, I wouldn't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted someone who was passionate about Brigsby Bear, and it's so obscure, we were like, I, I, I guess the number one fan is you. <laughs> <laughs> also unusually we are recording two separate sections on this one with two different focus points the first part we'll be talking with Name about why he picked this film in particular and why he loves it so intensely the second part we'll be chatting with Dr. Hunter Mulcair whom you folks may remember from our shows on Analyze This and Mary and Max and we'll be delving into the psychological angle with Hunter so Brigsby Bear was produced by the Lonely Island, looking to compound their total lack of success with Hot Rod and the truly excellent pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. Also co-produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and directed by Dave McCary, who is the lucky bastard married to Emma Stone. First, let me elucidate the premise. James is a young man in his mid to late 20s. He lives with his parents in an underground bunker, much like Fallout, and he has never been out on the toxic surface of the earth alone. For 25 years now, his only source of entertainment has been new VHS tapes dropped in every week containing a new episode of his very favourite show, Brigsby Bear. The theme tune sounds like gummy bears. The production value is squarely early 90s live-action, scrappy, low-budget children's sci-fi TV filmed on video just like a McDonald's ad, and it never seems to have updated over the 25 years. The bear himself is clearly a person in a Five Nights at Freddy's suit with a massive head like Mayor McCheese surrounded by gleep glops like the, uh, the fry freaks or the little from the McDonald's ads, and a maniacal giant yellow head in the sky named Sun Snatcher, who, now that I think about it, is like the baby in Teletubbies, only he drank from the wrong grail. What, what are you, what? what? I can't say yet, because you haven't got to the twist. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. James is obsessed. Oh, no, I just there got that. Go. What the hell? <laughs> 
<laughs> like it was the the twist was there all along. Okay, James is obsessed with the far-reaching and complex lore of the show Brigsby Bear, and he chats with it on his very old computer with other fans, effectively running an enthusiast chat room. He works diligently on his studies, encouraged by his mother, who used to be a teacher. The Mitchells are played by Mark Hamill as Ted and Jane Addams as April. Dad is really into Brigsby too, and where the story might go next. He's always interested in seeing his son's lengthy, prop-based presentations. Mom... Not so much. One night, curiosity gets the better of James, despite the fact that Brigsby Bear tells him not to be curious, especially as he watches his father go off yet again, travelling the surface in a gas mask, as he does frequently. But as soon as James takes a step into the darkness towards the outside world, a cavalcade of police turn up and arrest his parents. It turns out James has spent his whole life in captivity after being kidnapped by Jane and subsequently Ted as an infant. His quote-unquote parents are now going to jail and he is reunited with his birth family and extremely relieved Greg and Louise Pope. James is bewildered and asks them and his new sister Aubrey, and who's a teenager, a, a good seven years younger than him, and the most sympathetic detective, Vogel, played by Greg Kinnear, asks them all kinds of questions, most of which tend to slide towards Brigsby Bear. James, did they ever touch you? It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they'd grab me. Like this. He's shaking the detective's hand. And they'd say, Great job on your studies, James. We love you. Happened a lot. What's that in your shirt? It's Brigsby. Of course. Turns out the show was real, but it was being filmed and performed only for James by his captor Ted and some paid actors in a hidden studio 40 miles away. James is the only person to have ever seen this, and the 25 years worth of 52 weekly installments on VHS that lined his room down in the bunker are the only copies. The materials used for filming are also seized as police evidence, including the sets and costumes. Adapting to life on the surface is hard for James. There is a media circus regarding this fellow who has been in captivity his whole life and in many ways has not developed to a maturity commensurate with his years, which makes bonding with his birth family a fraught and frazzled affair. James is played by friend of the director since childhood and co-writer of the film, Kyle Mooney. There is a delicate awkwardness to his approach to life, and to other people, and to humour, making the viewing of this film a challenge for audiences expecting either a thigh-slapping comedy or a serious drama. It, it falls somewhere in the middle, and people were laughing nervously, unsure as to whether they should. James is taken to a party full of teenagers, where he is at once too old physically for the room, but engages with the other kids with the uncertain silences and frantically enthusiastic oversharing regarding his encyclopedic knowledge of the show he loves so much of a 10-year-old. 
Amazingly, the teens are kind and receptive, and nobody is rude or aggressive, and he makes a good friend with nerdy Spencer, played by George Lenderberg Jr. from Bumblebee and Love, Simon. The teens hang on James's description, and he even winds up in a bedroom being subjected to an unexpected makeout session with one of his sister's school friends. This quickly overwhelms James, and he runs, despite the fact that, as we see in the film before, during, and after this scene, he certainly finds the process of physical and emotional intimacy appealing in principle. It's just overwhelming in the unexpected moment. But that's about the worst thing that happens at the party. It's not like hereditary, folks. But after realising that there will be no more Brigsby Bear, James makes his new ongoing project to film a movie, which to him is like a really, really, really long episode of Brigsby Bear, since he's never seen a movie before until he finally gets out and goes to see something that looks a bit like the Bad News Bears. Mm. But starring... Mighty Ducks. But starring Andy Richter. He wants to film a movie utilising the props and costumes that Detective Vogel, Greg Kinnear, sneaks out of the police archives for him. Again, against all odds, some of the teens who have gathered around James are swept up in his ambition to make a movie, but also it lands him in trouble with a lot of the authorities, and the family that he is now with do not quite know what to do with him. So that is the light, the bear's share of the movie, is, is him attempting to... Uh, climatize himself to this new version of the world. And then when we reach the halfway point, he's like, right, I got to make some Brigsby Bear. So the first and most obvious question is, Name, why did you specifically want us to look at this one and why share it with so many people? I was introduced to this movie through uh, my mom, who has a very long running uh, Netflix DVD subscription. <laughs> and she would... Uh, get, she get the VHS tapes through the mail because that would be appropriate. That's uh, yeah. You know what? Uh, she got the discs for sure. <laughs> um, this was recommended to her through um, all, all of the things that she liked and etc. And she watched. She said, "Hey, Nama, you got to watch this movie. This is, this is, this is something." I'm betting she said it's dope as shit. And I watched it with her, and I was like, "Wow, it's it's really unique in how it presents itself. It is not." the Truman show, hmm. but it's not elf either, right? You've got these fish out of water stories that can be taken either very seriously or very comedically, but it's somewhere in the middle and it's not something that audiences are really used to watching. Hmm. It's, it's very earnest in like everything it does. Um, the jokes do not come very often, I would say. But they are earned, and the moments that it just takes time for you to sit with the lead character or or side characters. And I just wanted to to kind of get it out there, because I certainly don't know anybody that's seen it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, we need to just kind of bite the bullet and take the risk that we're going to get a low download count on the episodes that people are like, never heard of that movie, don't care. A lot of them, a lot of people, we hear from people going, I didn't even know this movie existed, but I want to hear those episodes the most because if effectively we're doing what Name is intending here, introducing folks to something new. And in the case of this, it's genuinely uplifting. Uh, Name, do you see any of yourself in this film? Is it with the points where you're watching and going, honestly, I feel like I do that sometimes? Whether as James or someone else around him. I think what really clicks with me with this movie is that storytelling is a very, like, 
folk, very much a focus point in James's life. Mm-hmm. He processes like emotions and deals with concepts through storytelling uh, through this show that he loves so much. And he applies that to, you know, other movies that he gets to see on the big screen now that he's in the world and his social interactions, be it with his family or his uh, the detective that is kind of running his case or even his therapist as he gets introduced to her. I, when it comes to myself, I, you know, I, I, I've been talking to you guys for a very long time. I really enjoy, I really enjoy stories that have a real emotional connection, uh, either be, be through character arcs or using music and score to, um, to develop emotional through lines. You know, we, you know, this, this podcast talked a lot about color theory and, all of these things like come into how I relate to um, the world. I mean, I, I got my my bachelor degree in uh, English and literature, and I just think that storytelling is really important. And I think that the movie agrees with that. I think mm-hmm. the movie is saying that storytelling connects us. It is the, like the creative output fuels the soul, and it allows us to move on from things that are traumatic. I was actually surprised by how uh, not black and white they made the scenario with his fake parents and his uh, quote-unquote real parents. We never see uh, his mother, uh, his, in quotes, mother again. We only go back to Mark Hamill once at the very end of the film. He is not taking part in it. But ultimately, uh, a lot of the unseen connection in the film is James working out that the man inside Brigsby Bear doing the voice of Brigsby Bear was the man who raised him, the man inside Sun Stealer, the giant evil son, whom he should have recognized immediately by his beard and his voice and the fact <laughs> that it's Mark Hamill is Mark Hamill. It's, it's, uh, uh, he's perfectly cast and very, very well chosen for who he is because if they'd selected someone who is automatically a creep, like who who just makes your skin crawl immediately? Uh, Mads Mickelson. Mads Mick. Yeah, if he'd be like, yes, now here's the newest be a Brigsby Bear for you to watch. Yeah, it would have been, oh my God, no. Uh, Udo Kier as his grandfather. Yeah, he's going to eat him, clearly. You must watch the new Brigsby Bear. He will teach you never to go wandering. It would be so easy to label this, to go to one of two extremes. Either his parents are utterly evil and this was manipulation of the highest order which absolutely was intended to be just in terms of of we've got to give him something which will not only uh entertain him but reinforce the values we want him to hold on to and not and make sure that he lives well with his parental units us and doesn't go wandering off there's a the more you think about it, it it's a case of that they were obsessed with maintaining this absolute, this sort of pristine family unit. Like there's, there's a lot in Brigsby Bear that's like, you know, you absolutely must subsume yourself to the family unit. But at the same time, the things they intended him to learn from Brigsby versus the things he actually learned aren't necessarily parallel. And in the other direction, they could have made it that these are the parents who really loved him and that his birth parents are actually horrible in real life and he ends up running back to the arms of these uh, criminals. But they don't do that either. It's a refreshing that they didn't take either obvious route on these. 
we get um, very precious little information about the motives behind the kidnapping. Mm-hmm. They don't There's, try to uh, uh, get us to sympathize with villains effectively mm-hmm. and say, well, they lost a child and so they had to steal one. I think it's, in, it's uh, raising Arizona if they didn't give the baby back at the end. Yeah, I think in part <laughs> that might be why we don't hear a great deal from April because mm-hmm. we, what we do know is that she's the one who grabbed the child in the first place mm-hmm. and brought mm-hmm. him home. Ultimately... Or, all, quote-unquote, that Ted has done is make the best of a bad situation and try to raise James in a way that is consistent with how he sees the world. He was not party to the actual kidnapping itself. Um, not my idea, but I went along with it. He's or, been in a compass for 25, for 25 years. years. He's not done anything to unpick it either. Um, but he seems to have more of a developed connection with James and I I think Mm -hmm. a lot of that is down to how they are framed in terms of their own interests like you said Name a huge focus of this is storytelling and how that creates connections between people Ted is the storyteller of of the family April is a mathematician she's very practical and pragmatic and is constantly trying to nudge James away from the Brigsby stories towards more rational and uh which is a bit fucking rich coming from her it really is yeah but but that's what i mean if if we if we had more of her it might be that there would be uh more compulsion to try and explain how she sees the world and why what her motives are and i think that that's Mm -hmm. possibly a a line down which the writers felt they could not follow it's very I think, much focused on James, and he's not painted as a victim. He's he's in charge of his own rehabilitation, and he understands himself better than everyone else does. No, mate, carry on. Well, I think that it's really key to look at the relationship between... He, he called them old mom, old dad. So his relationship with his old mom is almost non-existent, right? Even though that she's the one that began this situation that they were in for 25 years... Mm. Um, she she hardly even has any lines in the introduction of the movie that she's in. Yeah. And she's not but, engaging with his lecture, and it is a lecture. Yeah. So, But the old dad, Mark Hamill, uh, he decided you know, to be an accomplice to this situation. But not only does he take time to speak with uh, James, you know, like after dinner and things like that, but he's also the creator of his the, the you know james's bible his mm. his whole life and so that's basically like a 24/7 connection like a, a relationship between um james and ted that james is not inherently aware of but it has a lot to do like in the background there's so much not in the text that the movie gives the viewer to work with. I don't know. It's very compelling. There are a couple of movies that it reminds me of, but only in terms of tangentially related to plot. Um, number one is Blast from the Past. You ever heard of that one? I don't think I have. Brendan Fraser is a uh, a squeaky clean chap whose father, Christopher Walken, creates a bomb shelter in the, I think it's early 60s, if in case the uh, the Russians drop the bomb. that He, uh, during a house party, and his wife, played by Sissy Spacek, think a bomb is dropping. They shut themselves, and she's pregnant, into this vault, and it is programmed to not open up again for another 30 years. 
he gets thawed out in the 90s. And it's not a million miles from off of Austin Powers in terms of, look at how jaded the 90s is. And I'm like, oh, my sweet summer child, the 90s were not jaded. <laughs> this was a fairyland and I'm Bilbo Hicks. And I'm just beginning to realise how many times Brendan Fraser plays the role of sweet, naive, beautiful, athletic man being driven around the place by jaded types. George of the Jungle, Encino Man, Bedazzled, Gods and Monsters. Ultimately, Brendan Fraser comes out and he's a perfect gentleman and he meets jaded old husk Alicia Silverstone just a few years off of doing Clueless. He's really supportive and sweet-natured and kind and he's only known these uh, parents his entire life and kind of has to get used to this modern world, which obviously there's a lot of kind of culture shock going on there. A couple of others that it reminds me of. Goodbye Lenin. Daniel Brühl, who plays Zemo, it's in one of his much earlier roles. Uh, I think it's it's set in the very late 80s. Uh, His mother and he live uh, on one side of the Berlin Wall, and then she gets into an accident and is left in a coma, but she comes out of that coma after the Berlin Wall has fallen, but she's in a very delicate situation, and the doctors tell him not to let her get any shocks. So he has to pretend that Berlin is still divided and effectively ease her into this new state of affairs. So it's that same kind of keeping her safe from the horrors of the outside world scenario. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, they both have to kind of let go of this particular way of life that they've been uh, clinging to. And another two that it remind me of is the very serious drama Room, which Brie Larson first uh, shot to uh, um, serious, acclaimed, uh, critically acclaimed acting chops fame uh, with as Room. And that's where she and her kid, Jacob Tremblay, have been... She was kidnapped and, and has to raise Jacob Tremblay from, you know, to, to like a, an eight-year-old kid before they're finally let out. And then this kid needs to be rehabilitated into regular society by uh, Brie Larson's family, uh, which also reminds me of Mama by Andy Muschietti, director of It, produced by Guillermo del Toro, where Jessica Chastain is a punk who absolutely does not want to be a mum fighting a ghost for care of a pair of feral twin girls. The other one is The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is kind of a, a, a comedy satire version of the same thing, where Erin uh, from The Office uh, is released from a cult leader's basement after mm-hmm. you know believing his hogwash for many, many, many years as one of his wives, and she kind of has to go out into the world with her super can-do attitude and supreme naivety. Oh, another one that uh, that sort of applies to this one is the two Brady Bunch movies from the 90s. Only there's no literal given reason why they are the way they are in there. For some reason, they're stuck in this time capsule that, that tells them that they're in the very twee American version of the 70s. But in fact, they are in the very jaded 90s again. There was a lot of 70s nostalgia in the 90s. It was like disco was a gag and it was the... Setup and the punchline. Remember disco? In in the Brady Bunch, you've got these like supremely naive, sweet-natured, twee youngsters, fresh-faced, be, you know, coming up against a, a a world unwilling to accept the kind of sweet-natured reality that they live in. Wait, we can save the house. We can raise the money ourselves. 
But how? Well, we can each get jobs and earn extra money. Hey, neato idea. Gee, there's so many things I'm good at. I wouldn't know where to start. Oh, I'm just so perfect at so many things. You're just jealous, Jan. I think, again, what felt refreshing about Brigsby is that they don't hit him with 2017 America doomers. The doomer generation going, Trump is in the White House. The whole world is doomed. The the kids are actually kind of much like uh, uh, one of our favourite teen movies from around this era, Booksmart. The kids are actually supportive of each other. If if it was the uh, 80s and John Hughes immediately he'd start being bullied. If it was a Stephen King book, there'd be a psychopath he had to deal with. Because apparently Mm -hmm. Stephen King went to school with nobody but Jeffrey Dahmer. But, (laughs) But in this... I think the, just the thing that feels so pure and refreshing is that the kids are buoyed up by his enthusiasm. And rather than simply going, that kid is weird. This is weird. I don't want anything to do with it. It'll make me feel weird and, and we'll get ostracized. We'll be ill-spoken of by the menfolk. They're like, hey, I'm not doing anything. We can you know, spend the summer making a, a movie about a, a space bear. I'm cool with that. And they actually enjoy his company and... Even though they're doing this really weird, childish thing, it's it's something they they all seem to grab hold of and benefit from. The key to dealing with James and connecting with him is not having him come to your level, but rather to go to his, mm-hmm. right? His real biological parents are expecting him to come to 2017 right now. His therapist certainly so. Uh, There's a little bit of pressure from the detective at first, but the teens that do um, relate with him and say, yes, let's make this movie, just accept him right Mm. then and there. And that is really a blessing to James. There's that moment when he first connects with Spencer and he says, you're my friend. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I've never had this before. And by celebrating what he loves – he's able to further integrate into the society that he never knew was there. When the outside forces that, you know, aren't, they don't will anything bad for him. They want the best for him, but they don't understand how to relate in that way. And so that's where most of the conflict in this movie comes from with not understanding, not necessarily why, James loves Brigsby Bear, but that he loves Brigsby Bear. It's not just something really silly that you outgrow of and move on to other shows. This is him. And what is really significant that is not spelled out in the movie is that he does not want to continue the show. Mm. He wants to make a movie to end the show. He does say it outright, uh, I think, once. Yeah. It could be construed, unless you're paying attention, that he just can't mm-hmm. let this thing go. But it's it's all a, a conscious effort to let it go. Yeah, exactly. And, like, it, I don't think that uh, his parents or his therapist make this, uh, like, that they figure this out, that he's trying to put it away. Mm. They haven't and it's committed. Not in, yeah, the it's 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 really incredible that they did that. By the way, it's like yeah. wow, it's horrible. Is, it's like yeah, we've yeah. got to make sure that you don't go out and and you know start filmmaking. I mean, that there is 
one issue that uh, that validates this the decision to consider mm-hmm. him to be unsafe to himself and potentially others he creates a bomb and blows it up for production value uh, which he didn't tell his friends about which means that he is not living in a world that acknowledges safety issues yeah and and following that as well he steals a car and goes off on his own and i think these two events combined with the fact that his parents have been expecting him to kind of be be more normal. Like, they, they don't know how he's lived for the last however many years. In their heads, he's been raised like a, an average boy just with somebody else. Well, they, so, keep, they keep treating him like, oh, you've all never been able to do this thing. They imagine him sitting in a cell, bouncing a tennis ball against the wall for 25 years straight, wishing he could get out when he like wasn't that. actually but aware are, that there was an outside to get to. There are skills of, of communication and methods of um, interacting that they expect him to have, which he does not have. And the, uh, the, the, I think having him put into the institution is only ever intended to be a temporary thing, mm. but it's, it's a recognition on their part or a recognition is not quite the right word. It's a, it's a, Surrender. a belief on their part that James cannot cope with quote unquote normal life mm. and that he needs to be somewhere where he can be looked after and helped to get to a stage where he can cope better with normal life, which is what institutions of this nature are supposed to do. The fact that historically that is not what they've done is kind of... That's the side of things that we don't really look at. We're just going to push him against the wall and then turn the fire hose on him. What? (laughs) They don't. They don't. There's no cruelty of that. But the idea is that this is somewhere where you can... like Think about old-style hospitals where people went for a rest cure, where the rich went when they were under too much stress and pressure, where you would get to wander around the grass-filled grounds of a sanitarium and actually get fed every day and not have to worry about looking after yourself and so you could concentrate on getting better. Uh, it does look a little bit like a... a pr- it's it's prison-y. I know, but the, what I mean is the intent. That's their idea for what this will do for him, is, is give him some support for a short duration of time that they feel unqualified to do. Instead, he's the more alone than he's ever been in his entire life because mm. he's always had a mom and dad there to support him and he kind of ends up making friends with Andy Samberg's character who's in it for like a blink in your miss it cameo as uh, a guy who's obviously troubled and in there as well but they they bond quietly and he ends up being in the uh, the film as in a in a cameo ironically but but i think because james's portal for communication has always been brigsby hmm. It's not just how he communicated with April and Ted. Mm-hmm. It's how he communicated with his... Uh, they were imaginary friends, but he didn't know that. Yeah. And all his contact with them and all of the... Yeah, it was a closed-circuit uh, chat room. So, effectively, he was discussing things with his dad. Yes, and possibly, possibly April. Possibly April, but yeah. let's face it... <laughs> if they were talking about likely. Briggsby, she probably didn't she get involved like, much. She doesn't but, care. And let's look, that, that, there's the major <laughs> problem. If she's not on board with Briggsby, mm. how did this work for 25 fucking years? That is years? a really good question. Like she's, like, when, when he's given the lecture at the beginning, she should be like, and now I go to my knitting or my macrame or yeah. my drawing. I am drawing, just going to let you boys get on with it. I am nothing to do with Calculus that. or <laughs> something that allows my brain to go elsewhere when he starts going on about Briggsby. 
The the this instead is... she's like oh, oh like she, the expression on her face is he's twenty seven years old now. When's he gonna stop being into Brigsby Bear? It's like you still haven't gotten used to the fact that this is him from now on. But this is the thing. You and, snatched and this part, baby, lady. This is why I think we it wouldn't be possible to maintain the positivity and optimism of this story if we look too much at April in particular because. She does things which are incongruous with what she's done so far. Mm. When she's at the dinner table lecturing them about, what, you know, why are you still going on about this Brigsby thing? You should be concentrating on your studies. For what, For what? purpose, For what? lady? You You're never keeping him in here. him out of this house. <laughs> it's like, you, yeah. It almost feels like she wanted a, a child to bring up as a replica of herself. And You're a teacher. Teach those kids. When well, she is. She's a maths teacher. She's trying to teach him like high level mathematics. Okay. Continue to be a maths teacher. Teach those kids. Oh, those kids, right? If Not that's your only interest, you've got the right job. <laughs> you have the ear of, of your. <laughs> you don't want to hear about Brigsby mathematics, lady. Indeed, um, but instead he ends up becoming more of a, um, a progeny of Ted, and I think that's part of the source of her frustration. Ted. Ted, I just got that. Mm. Uh, I, I was also looking at the fact that uh, he has... Uh, let's do some uh, quick addition, shall we? So let's see. Uh, 52 weeks in a year times 25 years. That's 1,300 episodes of Brigsby. He says there's 726. Maybe there was summer, so, summer breaks or something like that. My guess is they didn't start the moment he was an infant, that it, but it happened several weeks years in but even so I'm going with 25 years here uh, he's been apparently they've been missing since 1987 that's uh, the which is confirmed which suggests that uh, he is in fact 30 and they didn't start Brigsby until he was five years old because it's it began as kind of like this is how we teach him multiplication in a fun way mm. but under those circumstances I was like and he's driving 40 miles to make uh, 1,300 times to like 40 miles there, 40 miles back. Like, you, you can't, like, this is the most expensive project I have ever heard of that goes on for 25 years. And I was like, how, how is he affording this? And they uh, explain why in a really throwaway fashion that actually does hold water. He was the creator of, like, Tyrone the Tiger or something, a fake Teddy Ruxpin uh, um, like toy that was a huge craze in the 80s, which must clearly have made him a mint that he spent on this. And frankly, he wasted his life too. He should have been a children's entertainer doing this on telly. Because clearly he's making something that a lot of kids would have really liked. Just give it higher production values and give him creative control. But unfortunately, he's a massive criminal. <laughs> there is the slight problem in that he's there going to that. be in jail for the next yeah. 30 years. But it does feel like, you know, if he'd been able to jump forwards and look at what he had actually achieved with Brigsby Bear and this boy, that he's, you know, could think to himself, hey, maybe I should just do that. And, you know, tell my wife, let's adopt. You know, they're not going to say no to the creator of the equivalent of Teddy Ruxpin. Come drink with me tonight. Let's go to far off places and search for treasures bright. I guess it should be said that 
some of these episodes make their way online in within oh, yeah. the movie and it uh, gets a little bit of a following and there's another throwaway line saying that they were able to um, have a successful Kickstarter to continue making this movie. Nice. So it, it does connect. I, I keep saying that word, but audiences really like it mm. um, w- within the movie. It's a, it's a kind of naive movie, and it's strange, and it speaks in the language of its creators, which if you listen to the uh, commentary, as you were talking me through, Name, I was like, now they're talking about Transformers the movie from 1986, <laughs> and one of them doesn't know what the other one's talking about. It is rambling and all over mm-hmm. the place. But then so's the movie, and it kind of, if you can get to that level, it's heartbreaking and heartwarming in equal measure well the creators of the movie you've got uh dave mccary and childhood friend cal moody right mm-hmm. and they're the uh the star and the director of the movie and got their start with some youtube skits mm. and i know that uh, their... the director did some saturday night live uh d- direction which is probably yes. how he met the lonely island and how they godfathered this movie mm-hmm and so, yeah, their creative efforts together as friends just kind of snowballed into now they're making a movie together. So it, it becomes an art imitates life in that they come at this as let's have fun making a movie together. And the movie is people having fun making a movie together. One thing that almost all of the movies that I've compared this to have in common with this is uh, that the person who has been raised inside this bunker-like existence is on the right track. It's very rare that they come out and they're like snarling feral barn cats and they don't, they, they can't people at all. I think Mama's one of the only ones where there, there is so many difficulties for one of the sisters in particular that it leads to a very, very difficult situation by the end. But Blast from the Past, it's critiquing the 90s, as is the Brady Bunch, saying, we're too jaded now. He's right. Superman is right. You know, the Boy Scout who uh, who wants to see the world this simplistically is not bogged down with all the cares we have. And so he doesn't have those things holding him back because to him, everything's a can-do situation. I am not to this to this certain extent but i was homeschooled all through high school mm-hmm. i was taught math by my mom i was showed uh marvel comics and stuff by my dad it wasn't a completely isolated situation we lived in the middle of a town not on a farm i had relationships with kids my age all throughout my life but there 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 is a certain kind of perspective that i have that is different from a lot of other people that uh, that's brighter i guess i don't know i don't want to <laughs> have this be a, a breakdown of me necessarily but i, oh, I no, do no, uh, um, i'm not uh, i don't expect you to necessarily account for for why you have this particular positivity uh, but like i said the, the the films in question all seem to not so much admonish our general attitudes but look wistfully back to a, a time when th- we didn't have quite so much heaviness laid upon us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could, even though it was made pre-internet with blasts from the past, we were already getting access to sort of what was happening around the world. And it's gotten more and more and more intense as it mm-hmm. went uh, beyond that. And I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos recently that have been nudging folks towards and have been showing examples of people who have in fact moved themselves towards a less intense existence. Currently Sharon's reading uh, me a book uh, on 
uh, what's the word? Frugal hedonism, which is dialing back the clock, not spending anywhere near as much and or being anxious that you're not buying the new best thing, repairing as Mm -hmm. much as you can, restoring as much as you can, recycling as much as you can, living as ecologically with the world as possible, but to do so potentially on a much larger level as a movement rather than an individual level from people privileged enough to, I can just give up my car because I don't need it to drive to two jobs. I do think it's important as well when people are looking at it in those those terms, like back in the day, we didn't need all this stuff. We didn't crave all this hmm. information. We, we had lived a much simpler life. You've got to really look carefully at, at what about that previous era appeals to you because... If your if your aim is let's dial it back to that level of acquisition and then try and maintain something sustainable from there, mm. that's fine. But don't forget that in that era, everybody was obsessed with growth and plastics and boom. And that's how we got here in the first place. Yeah, they specifically say in the book that if you can sort of dial it back to 1960s Switzerland rather than 1960s America, the foreword on the book says, think about it. What would happen if all forms of electronic communication crashed overnight? No mobile phones, no text messaging, no Facebook, no email, nothing for the kids to watch on their iPads when having a family dinner with their parents. Would people be unhappy? You bet they would. There would be screams of outrage, howls of distress, heart palpitations, and demands that the government fix it quick. But after a few days, a few weeks for the real addicts, people would find that there are other things to do, other ways to communicate. Conversation is good. After all, in the 1950s, hell, in the 1980s, none of these things existed. Were people miserable then? In fact, all of the data show that people in the 1950s were happier. They had fridges, but no air travel, telephones, but no iPhones, pets, but no pet jewelry, barbecues, but no $7,000 outdoor kitchens, and fast food that meant fish and chips. Granted, this is the foreword by Clive Hamilton, not the main section of the book, The Art of Frugal Hedonism, A Guide to Spending Less While Enjoying Everything More, by Anne Razor Rowland and Adam Grubb, who are both Australian. We were glad when a dingo took our baby, just like in the 1950s. They don't say that. Did you canvas people of colour? Did you canvas queer people? <laughs> also, there's a significant difference between post-war Europe, mm. who, were, who were trying to rebuild with what they had left, which was not a great deal Mm. and America which was going I don't know what you're on about we made a fortune yeah but ultimately uh, we are at a point where we're doom scrolling and anxiety are linked to a degree where being able to dial back and step away is our responsibility to our, our own health but at the same time this film doesn't really focus on the dichotomy between James and the other teenagers. It doesn't have that jaded Alicia Silverstone character. The closest we get is Aubrey, who is, uh, you know, she's a teenage girl, and so she's anxious about being embarrassed. There's also something, I think, potentially quite significant about the age difference between mm-hmm. them. You said that Aubrey seemed to be about maybe seven or eight years younger than him. Mm-hmm. The length of time before somebody who is missing is declared legally dead is seven years. My guess is his parents hung on until he was officially recorded as deceased and then decided to have another child. And just get on with their family, yeah. Uh, The the mother and father haven't really... The the birth mother and father haven't really been uh, uh, spoken about enough. 
again, I like the fact that they don't do this in broad brushstrokes. They, they are clearly trying. They're trying to get him to meet them on their level. And they don't get to the point where they can actually recognize what he's doing with Brigsby as a positive. To them, it is... Uh, indicative of these are the tools by which the captors of our baby kept him controlled and Mm -hmm. him still obsessing about it now is a sign that he is still down there and he's not come back properly which is obviously making them distraught and it's 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 deftly handled again it feels like maybe a little bit more character work in this film might have actually revealed more motivation back and forth and kind of complicated matters. But at the same time, that stuff is still there. It's just much more subtextual. Mm. I think part of what creates the difficulty with for them and how they handle James, because although their, their attempts to reconnect with him are clearly well-intentioned, occasionally a little bit ham-fisted, but they are always gentle. They are always trying really hard not to push him. Occasionally they do, but then they they step back really quickly when they realise that they have. It's just that sometimes it takes a bit longer than you would like for them to realise. But as soon as they do, they step back. I like the fact that Aubrey's also watching what's going on and what they're saying. They start naming things they can do around water. And she notices and says, could you stop naming water-related things? You're freaking him out. Mm, Indeed. Um, But... Ultimately, what I think they will be acutely aware of is James is an adult. He doesn't have to stay with them if he doesn't want to at all. He could just leave. There's a really good shot. uh, Watch uh, carefully next time you uh, see it. When they take him to his new room, it's got relative to his original room, which was obviously his place of absolute comfort and where he's got all these Brigsby tapes seemingly arranged in a giant piles on the shelf but if you look carefully they're actually arranged neatly by year to uh accommodate for being able to find specific episodes <clears throat> and then his new bedroom is just bare walls magnolia and here's a bed as the door closes his head is sort of down at the bottom of the screen and his whole body is kind of being swallowed up by this empty, boring room that has nothing in it for him, that nothing in it that is him, nothing in it that can promise some kind of view of the future that will be exciting. Mm. It, it also does have, I noticed, a positive view of the internet mm-hmm. because James has had what he believes to be the internet all this time, but obviously we know it wasn't. But the laptop that they give him is a source of information for him. He's a very fast learner. As soon as he sees a a real, quote-unquote, film, he decides that, okay, that's a means of, of of connecting with people. I get that. This on a screen, I might not have seen this story before, but I understand that this is a source of contact and communication with people. He tries to connect with Louise and Greg, his birth parents, over this new film that he's seen. He keeps trying to talk to them about it, and they're like, well, you've seen it now. Let's we, we move on. Let's do other stuff. They don't get that this is his method of communication utilizing the entertainment he's seen as a point of connect a point of contact with people who he finds it difficult to connect with directly it is possible one sympathizes it is possible to not meet someone even halfway and still be really nice to them yeah absolutely they at this stage they just don't get it they don't get that that's how he operates the speed with which he realizes 
it is possible for other people to make entertainment. I could make this stuff. I could make a film. Oh my God, I could make a film about Brigsby. He then gets, uh, like, how do I make a movie? Books on how to storyboard a film, which he then proceeds to do with alarming speed. It has the whole thing out on his wall. It's Well, just... he is an expert, effectively, on, on precisely yeah. how to frame this but... one character in this show. It, I mean, he's, he's clearly such a an intelligent kid and I keep calling him a kid and he's not and one of the, the huge things about this is that everybody treats him like a child when he isn't um, but the the speed with which he's able to take new stuff on board when he connects with it if it's if it's something that grabs him by the brain cells he is in all in 100% he is a, he is a walking hyper focus at the end of the movie they have finished production on their climactic end to Brigsby Bear, and they're going to premiere it at a local theater. Uh, it says sold out, which is wonderful. But James is really ridden with anxiety over the premiere because this is the first thing that he's created, and it's going to be shown to an audience, most people that he doesn't know, or at least knows tangentially. And so he's in the bathroom, he's a little sick over it, and Spencer comes in, Spencer tells him, and this is just about the last line of the movie, who cares what they think? You finished Brigsby. And I I, I see that as kind of doubling down again on just the themes of the movie being James operates independently. And he has, up to this point, really not cared what people have thought about the way that he behaves and the way that he operates you know, he's a little anxious right now because this is bearing his soul to a lot of people. Brigsby is him in a lot of ways that upsets him. But to hear again from from his friend, from Spencer, who cares what they think, right? Like, you are confident in what you've made. You are confident in who you are. And that's going to allow you to let go. And in the very the very final moments, after everybody has applauded and they do indeed like what he's made, we see Brigsby Bear himself, not anyone in a suit, but like this moment a vision of, of Brigsby in the yes, crowd. Yes, and they exchange a little nod. Um, Brigsby evaporates; so he 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 warps away to wherever you know the vision ends. And then he's just left with his friends and family. And it is a really nice end to the movie that depicts letting go. And I, I like that a lot. And on that note, I think it's time we bring in the expert, Dr. Hunter Mulcair of the Two Shrinks pod, after this. There are other people out there, just like us, right? Look at the grazer bucks, James. They're out there every night. The difference is we have dreams and imaginations to help us escape. But no one can take that away from you, ever. There's something I need to tell you. Everything's very big. It's 
really very big. The reason you're here, the reason I'm here, is all just to help you. Everyone says they're trying to help me, but nobody can find me in the new episode of Brigsby. There wasn't a new episode this week. This is about moving on with the rest of your life. Try to imagine a hero. Just be normal, all right? Uh. Hi, I'm James. I really like your clothes. <laughs> He's not on the bad side. He's on the good side. Rigsby Bear, our keeper of the light. Have you ever been with a girl? You really want to do this with me? Yeah, man. I mean, there's not a lot of stuff like this out there. <laughs> You're my friend. <laughs> okay, one, two, three. <laughs> G'day, how are you? G'day. Just this is just a warm into it. Like I, what I thought was really interesting was this was made pre-pandemic. Would that be right? Yeah, 2017. Um, and and just the start of it, it, there was something very relatable about it. You know the, you know the, you know there's a guy in his room um, watching something comforting, obsessing over the details. You know that that comfort and escape, and you know nostalgia being a comfort. You know, and, I, and it, it, there was something that. You know, is curiously prescient around uh, about it all. Mm. So I thought it was, and it was, and it started, what what a charming film! I've never, I've never seen, I'd not seen this film before. So it was a delight to kind of come on with it. Oh, and why don't we start with James, right? Mm. So, so psychologists, we we think diagnostically about people. So which is like you kind of try and classify people. Do this, but does a person have a mental disorder uh, or a psychiatric disorder? Um, and also we kind of develop what we call formulations. So that is, why do we, you know, how do we explain someone's behavior that we're seeing? Now, whether that is they've got a psychiatric disorder, you know, like is this is this person depressed and, and why is this person depressed? Or you can just be like, you know, why is this person angry all the time, which is not a psychiatric disorder, or, or why are they nervous, you know, or something like that. Mm. So initially, James, he seems lonely, at the start before he's rescued. Then once he's out, he seems quite nervous. And, you know, and psychologically, I started to think about it, like this guy's going through what we call adjustment. He's adapting and adjusting to his, in this new world, find himself in this different world. And he looks socially nervous. And now I started to wonder like, oh, is this guy, you know, has this guy got some elements of, of you know, ASD autism? But, you know, or is he just, just not developed socially? Uh, not just because he's got glasses and long hair, but he reminded me of Garth from Wayne's World. Yeah, I you get know, that. Yeah, you know, he was innocent in the ways of the world. Like, um, I can't do it in a Garth voice, but, um, you know. He makes me feel kind of funny. Like when we used it. to climb the rope at gym class. <laughs> okay, crazy lady. As a result, like every now and then he offers up those reflections about society that just like cut so deep. You know, not unlike some of those brief moments in terminator 2 where the series 800 sort of talks to john connor about humans and you see that in other here's a human talking to an outsider mm. uh, kinds of things what i was thinking about is like what's going on with this guy with his social interactions like there's a disorder called schizoid personality disorder and this is where if someone's kind of like a recl recluse mm -hmm. and they don't have much of a sort of social interaction world so think um 
Anthony Hopkins character in Remains of the Day. That's a very classic case of that. Okay. Um, uh, and the book of that is even more elaborate on that. You know, and that's where people don't feel a need for social contact. But that didn't really seem to fit with James. It was more that he was social contact initially was perplexing. You know, and and that social anxiety that was sort of the hallmark of him at the start of the film has has worn off. He's sort of been socially, you know, acclimated, or or um, and he reminds me a lot of like a, a primary schooler. School, and I think you guys talk about it like oh, he's about you know he's ten, and I was sort of thinking like oh, you know, sort of a grade five, grade six. He's sort of very determined mm. socially. He's kind of feeling his way about it, but he's not too socially concerned you know about judgment about mm. other people he it, once he gets past the initial awkwardness he is comfortable to still continue behaving like himself well if That's we it. go back to the thing i said about his mother uh wanting him to move on and you said he's stuck in here mm. she's created a closed system for him she wants him to grow up but is not letting him out. She's not out. giving him the space to do so. So I feel like even though, uh, subtextually speaking, it might have been that uh, he was, this was uh, by nature, that he was born with a certain kind of mindset, he has most definitely been raised with a specific mindset coding as a survival mm. mechanism. Yeah. As in, like, he has been taught over and over and over again the same rote coding so when he gets out his social anxiety is because he's only ever met two people but that also feels analogous to people who have met loads more folks than that but they feel in that same sense of of, of like an outsider in social situations mm. yeah exactly right and i think alex what you're sort of saying there is you know the coding is the is the really you know the environment that he was raised in is actually really critical. Like, so um, to, to I mean, you, you've, you've asked me on, so I'm going to go straight into psych stuff, if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. The, Absolutely, the, that's why you're here. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. A part of their history, along with the secret of gummy berry juice. The legend is growing, they take pride in knowing the fight for what's right whatever they do. So when I was at university, we learned about a case of uh, called Jeannie. So it's a very tragic case. Um, she was a young girl who was discovered, I think, in the 70s. Uh, she was about age 13, and she'd been kept in a locked room from about 20 months. Um, and no stimulation, malnourished, often bound to a chair. Um, she was discovered, and this was by her uh, biological father, I think, and she was found and then cared for by the state of California. She couldn't speak when she came out. And so at that time, this I mean, this was of great interest to linguists and psychologists, right? And, and the reason being is that they were really interested in testing and understanding these theories of language acquisition. Well, right? Because so, somebody had finally been subjected to the conditions that would be considered incredibly unethical in experimental say, conditions. This, you just cannot test it because it, the, the, the imposition would be so cruel. Yeah. yeah. Look, ethics boards get in the way of, you know, psychological... <laughs> But 
for good reason. <laughs> There's a long history of problematic stuff. What um, happens if we poke these dogs with sticks and electrocute them? Hey, maybe don't do that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Zimbardo. That's that's all I need, you need to mm. the, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, so they have these theories about you know well like. Does, does language need to be acquired during a critical period of life so early on? Because that's when we all learn, right? And if you think about, like, if you're learning a language, is it easier to learn it when you're a child or when you're an adult? They, those kinds of stuff. So here they had this individual, and so they wanted to see what went on with that. So she became a sort of focus of intense study. So what happened with her was that she was able to learn over time. You know, uh, she, she could... You know, she had really good nonverbal communication. Um, behaviorally, she did have some traits of an unsocialized person. And she was able to learn some language skills. But from what I remember and then the, the sort of research I did before the show, it never fully developed for her. It was a very, very tragic case. And, and unfortunately, she was failed just absolutely abysmally by the system afterwards but why i sort of draw attention to it is it's an interesting case in comparison because bunker dad that's how i started to think about bunker mum bunker dad and then you know real mum real dad but bunker dad even though he was the one imprisoning him he was actually a positive role model in quote-unquote terms was that the reason that he was able to adapt so easily to the transition to the outside world the father mark hamill's character is very talkative and philosophical and engages with him in a way we never get to see the mother doing yeah. and uh, it, it does seem like he's trying to to, to feed the, i mean the, the amount of effort he goes to in order to engage with his son with brigsby mm. bear like, it is the most preposterously long-form project I have ever seen yeah. that we are attempted to believe actually happened within this film. Mm. That, yeah. that, if that's not a loving father, I don't know what is. But at the same time, the film does put him in jail and say, okay, right, so what he did was absolutely illegal and unethical, and we're not actually going to be asking the questions of, you know, how is he, is he redeemable from that? Because ultimately, to James, when he goes to see him at the end, he just wants the voice. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, the the stuff you have to talk about does definitely apply to me, but right now I'm I'm on my own. I'm doing my own thing, and I need your voice. That does fit in with one of the elements of of child development theory. And I'm so sorry for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the lady who wrote the book. But it it basically says even when a child grows up in extremely difficult circumstances, um, whether that be neglect or abuse or, or that there's something else going on, it only takes one positive adult role model to give them an anchor, something to cling on. Onto that will then enable them to form the neural development that they need to then heal once they're out of the bad situation. It, it gives them the roots to then grow into a, a person that they have the potential to be. Yeah, exactly right. And and it, that sort of leads into uh, like a question that I was sort of thinking about, or like, or, uh, or in this this long form. Um, project and and I was explaining to my eight-year-old about this movie and we watched a trailer together and she and she asked the question and I know you've touched on it and and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it with a psychological diagnostic explanation but I'll ask you the question which is why did they make a tv show for him that's what my daughter asked but you know I'm curious 
you guys to, like why didn't they do it another way like i've got my own theory but why you know like why go into this big production it came across that it that was ted's want that was what what he really wanted to do was to make this show and create this character and it just so happened that he had this captive audience that he could deliver that show to whether the wider world was going to take it up or not Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. just doing it in a kind of, oh, I guess i got to go be Brigsby again. He was fully engaged after 25 years. And there's a, there's a comment that James makes as well about it got good after volume 14. Yeah, he does mention So that. when it was focused on his early primary academic learning, mm. which is what the early, early shows were intended to convey... He didn't engage with it quite as much. Once he'd reached an age where he'd probably learned as much as as Ted could teach him. At 14, Mm. your brain starts to be able to process a whole lot of new stuff. Absolutely, yeah. That's when you really get into hobbies and reading and worlds and films and TV shows. Well, that's when you really start to to develop towards your taste and your your creativity and and becoming an adult. Obviously, the the foundations of it are laid a lot earlier than Mm. that. But if you think about the fact that before the concept of the teenager was invented, at 14... You'd be an adult. You'd be ready to go out into the world and do adult things. Mm-hmm. So um, the that's sort of the point at which I feel like Ted could really let rip with his own creativity and give James something that extended the world beyond what they had immediate access to or what he thought he had immediate access to. Yeah. So, yeah, like so, so uh, in development-wise, uh, around 11 is when you start to really start to develop abstract thought right so and that's why you know so you can imagine a world rather than just thinking about the world that's in front of you right um and so that's why teenagers are always upset with their parents is because they can they start to be able to these kids start to be able to imagine the perfect parent and no no parent ever matches up to that um and so that's why that's why teenagers then become you know, unhappy with their parents at that point, which sort of fits into just exactly what you're talking about, Sharon. So I was thinking about this in terms of like clinically, like how would I diagnose or explain people? Now, I, you know, I don't walk around trying to diagnose everybody, but when I start to think about it, then my brain It's hard to turn it off. <laughs> but I have to, I have to, if I'm out for drinks, I'm not thinking about it, just so if anyone's listening to me. The, um, but dad seems clinically odd you know that sounds very pejorative when he gets visited in jail you know he seems a bit odd you know like this like he said you know the van Smythe's conjecture was six all along you know like it's sort of like what, what's going on um he he does show some insight into his behavior so the insight is like he's aware you know he talks about you know when the, his partner comes home with the baby like you know and he's aware of a whole lot of stuff right so he's not completely divorced from reality he's not completely what we call delusional mm. right but you know i think that there's an element of delusion there right so let me define these good good psychologists like so delusion is like when we believe that something's not real and it can't be shifted with evidence right so most classically we see this in schizophrenia and often there's like paranoia you know associated with these delusional beliefs they're sort of bizarre beliefs but you can have non-bizarre beliefs you know so these would be like you know the government's out to get you or firmly believing aliens exist or you know you know there's there's microphones in here you know they have sort of this really sort of intense quality to them but they don't always have to be like that and you can also get 
beliefs that are delusional-like intensity. So, you know, I work with some eating disorder patients and the anorexia, so young women, and they have body image distortion. So so they believe they're fat even though they're emaciated, they're, mm. they're underweight. You can have a break from reality, right? Um, he shows some insight into his behavior. He recognizes what he's done, but he seems unwell. And I'd suggest that from the brief moments, the, the mother, the kidnapper is as well, right? So April brought him home. That suggests that she might be the one that has the primary or the, the larger psychological or psychiatric problem. But for him to go along with it suggests he's got issues as well. So in terms of his mental health. So sometimes he's aiding and abetting for 25 to 30 years. And if he was yeah. doing it purely out of devotion to her, you would think he would seem more upset about being separated from her when they get sent to prison yeah he's not obsessed with her if anything he's obsessed with brigsby the way that his quote-unquote son is yeah you know and he's and he's pleased to see his son his quote-unquote son right you know yeah and and so, so some people do develop strong beliefs justifications for like what they've what they've done or how they've lived their life that are delusional like in quality like and you, and you you know you see this in forensic settings and things like that where people sort of have justifications for why they acted a certain way or whatever i looked into some research about female kidnappers some of the motives or some of the profile that they seem to think is that women who are in an unstable relationship where they feel in addition of a baby will cement a relationship unsure whether that's the case but you know given that they're together for 25 years you know, maybe. Often they have a history of manipulation and deceit, or often they're unable to have a baby on their own. The film's a bit silent on all of those things. Diagnostically, I started to wonder, like, okay, are they suffering from delusional disorder? So if you've watched Lars Lars and the Real Girl, mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling, that which is a great film, he, he's got that character's got a delusion that he's got a, a girlfriend, but it's actually a mannequin. They just have a delusion and it can't be, you know, shifted with any evidence. So you, it's interesting because it's part of schizophrenia, but that's not actually schizophrenia. They don't have all the other bits of schizophrenia. He makes such an effort to make this show. That's breaking his belief. You know, to go and do that would mean that you'd be very aware that this child is not mine. Mm. But then also, like, I also wondered whether actually at the same time it is sort of feeding into this belief of like, we live in a bunker and the outside world is, is strange and it could operate in both ways. Mm. Um, that is a, a, a worth thinking about, actually, how much of what he's telling James he actually believes because the, the scene where James sees him going to the car, he's wearing a gas mask and a protective suit. I interpreted that as he puts it on every morning to make sure that James doesn't go wandering out. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, just to make sure that James sees it. Yeah, but but then I wondered whether that then has become part of it, you know, Mm. like that, you know, it starts to become like this is their world, like, you know, and... And then that got me thinking there's a thing called folia due, which is a shared delusional disorder. So this is a rare psychiatric syndrome in where symptoms so of a delusional belief are transmitted from one individual to another, right? So you so you can have two people that have the shared same shared delusion. So now you can see this as you can have someone who's got a, a like a dominant person who imposes it on another person who might not have become deluded if they were left alone. But I think that's called folly imposee. And then you've got folly simultane where you might have, say, two unwell individuals who then influence each other in terms of their delusions. Right? So their it's delusional. almost like a group hysteria, but it's just going backwards and forwards between two people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so that's so, the film Bug with Michael Shannon 
uh, who he shuts himself and I think Laura Flynn Boyle in a uh, hotel room and pulls out his teeth and talks about the government spying on them until eventually she buys into his reality. Ashley Judd, not Laura Flynn Boyle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. I've, I've not seen that. It sounds it's grim. Awful. Yeah, I'm not good. It's like tinfoil hat times a million. Oh, God. So, you know, my thought was that maybe the, the bunker mum, April, was she looked more unwell to me mm-hmm. um, from a mental health perspective and whether the dad was influenced by that because she's got perhaps got this delusion of like James is my son and then through the actions the dad has – uh, bunker dad has become to believe that as well and then and then this out this other world starts to sort of delusional world starts to kind of develop and things like that um and and the thing that's consistent with this is that you know delusional disorder people become socially isolated and withdrawn and then as a result that feeds into them perhaps retreating into the world which seems what's happened here the other person that I thought might be worth talking about was dad's journey. What did you guys make of dad's journey? Like this is not bunker dad, but real, real dad. dad. Okay. Um, honestly, it felt like there were several scenes missing that went in between. You will never understand Brigsby bear coming from James. And then he, uh, uh, doesn't exactly storm off, but he separates himself to go out and, uh, and, and continue filming and do more searching. And then by the end, dad has completely embraced this. Uh, so it feels like there was maybe a scene that could have been written between James and his parents, wherein they illustrated why they got why this was important to. I him. mean, I think that there is a there is a, a nod towards that, but it doesn't come with James present. It's Aubrey showing them the video footage and yeah. them seeing how positive doing this film and, and interacting with Brigsby has actually been for It's him. all visual rather than verbal. Yeah. There's no big Goodwill hunting speech or even a Love, Simon with um, Josh Dumal uh, saying, I, I made all those jokes, oh, God, I'm sorry. Just the idea of a father turning a corner and realising that he finally gets his child. Yeah, I mean, because you see him, the dad, he's uh, really trying to engage his son. Like, it's, it's I, I was a bit disappointed we didn't get to see more of mum as mm. well. Maybe that's a you know a, a focus of you you gotta you gotta focus one area not not on every area but well if you didn't you know, focus on bunker mum you're not gonna focus on real mum either yeah I know they don't know how to white women over seventeen <sighs> yeah just Bechdel test guys anyway <laughs> um, you know he, he he does in that therapy session say you know I've been been looking for you for twenty five years it destroyed us like you know you got that sense of you know anger or, or just what that would have been like as a, as a parent, you know, and that this reunion didn't go, you know, they would have thought about this reunion, you know, and they would have, you know, planned on how it goes. And, and, and I mean, if anyone has been on a date and, and planned on how it's going to go and it never goes that way, like times that by a million, like the dad has to learn to adjust and bond on his terms, right. You know, and has to sort of except the Brigsby, which if you think about it, you would be revulsed by it. You would not want to hear any part of it if you were the parent because you'd be like, this is the thing that stabs at me like mm. the whole time. This is the thing that has a hold on my son. Yeah, this this person got to raise my son and I didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he loves you know, this thing, but he doesn't really have time for us. You know, it'd be akin to seeing a hideous scar that someone had put on a child, like your child. He drops him off at the prison to see the kidnapper, and it's sort of played very lightly. But I just thought, wow, you know, that, like, to be able to do that and to be calm and to not only be able to do that and drop him off, but to be calm and like, I'm, I'll be here for you, bud. He's had to learn in a quick time how to be a parent to his son. You know, and how and to he, trust his son effectively uh, unattended, despite the fact that yeah, he's yeah. clearly vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, he, this, this dad must be dealing with so much hurt and so much anger mm. towards a kidnapper. And, and I mean, if you think about, I've got primary school children, like sometimes when we're rushing for school, there's a little bit of anger and frustration expressed and that's just about being late like versus say that level of of emotion so you can view the dad sort of very thinly like oh you know he's being a bit of frustrating but like i think that journey it would be massive you know i think that the turning point like you sort of say is they they realize the son needs the bear like so he can transition and move forward it's brigsby is this safe way of interacting with the world and, and it's part of his identity. It is p- part of his identity. You know, if you view this James as an individual who is socially undeveloped for his age, you know, if you think about a teenager, they, they have an interest or maybe a couple of interests that define them. Their social interactions are based around them. So they'll talk to you about Minecraft or they'll talk to you about the music they're involved in, right? Um you know, back in my day, it was grunge and making tapes of you know of grunge music, right? Whereas, or you know, a kid might be into theatre and so listens to music, uh, listens to musicals, or they might be into sport and play sport and read about sport and look at things online about sport and they know all the stats. And often, the people they know are associated with that scene, right? So it becomes their world. And then as we become adults, we grow and develop broader interests and acquaintances. We may grow out of those interests. We may keep them, but if we keep them, it becomes a part of a larger, more complex identity, right? And that seems to be what that journey that James is on, right? I think what's interesting about the modern era of the internet is that many adults seek out a similar lifestyle. They devote their time to fandom or, or collecting sports. And in some ways, that can be sometimes that can be reviewed as a regression or an escape, which you know it's 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 negative. It's pausing identity development, but with others, it becomes an area of growth, right? It becomes an area of developing identity or, or developing interests or pursuing skills or, or connecting on a broader social environment, and and brings much joy, much growth. You know, James, I felt he completed the movie. You know, he he done his Brigsby journey, mm-hmm. right? And that, that was he, he he would still talk about it later on, but oh, yeah. I think he needed to have that done, right? So that he could re-engage. And I think once the family worked that out, other people like his parents were the last domino to fall because yeah. they would have had such big, strong ideas and emotions about their child and what they wanted, mm-hmm. whereas other people could see perhaps see him for what he you know what he actually needed. Another dimension, another time and space. A parallel universe is falling on its face. When out of the chaos, who else could it be? But the animal adventurers from SPACE. Bucky, Captain Bucky O'Hare. Mutants and aliens and toads beware. You're looking for adventure? Well, this is it.
There's a a little note that a lot of people overlook at the uh, end of the film. When Sun Snatcher turns up to uh, facilitate, ironically, destroying this universe and starting afresh, a lot of people assume that's Mark Hamill. It's not. He doesn't have the beard. That's James playing Sun Snatcher. Yeah. And then I immediately thought of Marlon Brando mumbling, The son becomes the father, and the father the, the son. This is his journey, because if you then extrapolate from that, the son is our god, and he has become his own sense of indeterminism. He can now, because he's been kept in this closed system, he has effectively been fated to wake up the same place every day, watch Brigsby Bear as given to him, handed down by his father, his model for God. And he can now make his own Brigsby Bear, but also go beyond Brigsby Bear, create a whole new universe that doesn't even necessarily require any of what came before. And he has now taken hold of his own fate. Mm. It's... Like I say, just a little thing, but it's so important that James is playing the son. It also kind of represents, um, like, the the fact that... He snatched Sun Snatcher from the Sun Snatchers. (laughs) The fact that this whole story revolves around a bear, which is the classical transitional object, the thing that we give to young children to help Mm. them grow up. Wow. Um, and the 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 way that he then takes that as his way of moving from the world of his childhood to the world that his adulthood is going to be. Mm-hmm. It, like I said, it's really embodying that idea of the transitional object. But also, there's a in in taking on the role of Sun Snatcher himself. If we think about, uh, like you were talking about, Hunter uh, Ted's bunker dad's uh, journey through how he's done this and why he's done this. We don't know any of the the reality of it because he doesn't talk about it, but maybe we can see part of him trying to process it himself through Brigsby, through the stories that he tells. The fact that he makes himself Sun Snatcher, this evil creature that that is constantly threatening Brigsby, (laughs) maybe that was was in part him coming to terms with what he was responsible for. And by taking that role himself in his own movie, James is expecting expressing a radical empathy that we wouldn't necessarily think of him as being uh, having the the experience and the skills for by putting himself in Ted's shoes in Ted's mm. literal face because that is the mask that Ted uses to create that character mm. he's it, it's almost like he's saying well just for a moment let me see if i can imagine what it was like to be you in that position Wow. And that is a very, very advanced and and emotionally developed thing to be able to do. Oh my God, yes. Hey guys, James here. Um, first of all, episode 34, volume 25. I put the recap up. So um, there's already a great comment section there and I recommend all of you guys go check that out immediately. Also, um, as some of you guys know, I've been studying the old Brigsby volumes going way back to the first Quest Wars when we initially meet the evildoer himself, aka Sun Snatcher. Obviously, Snatcher always gets away. But Brigsby never gives up, and and, and I, I'm, I'm not giving up either, and I've actually come up with some new ideas that I really want to tell you guys about, but I, 
I'm not. Let's just say. Let's just say that I'm. I'm onto something pretty big. Um, so stay tuned for that. And of course, as always, until our next adventure. You got a complete sidetrack here, but there was a movie called Badass. I think it might be Van Peebles, and it was an indie film. Oh, I'm going to get all the details wrong, but it's about a, a film made by a black director in the 70s, and it was um, very seminal in terms of getting African-Americans on film. Badass is, a, is the film telling that story about how that film got on 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 screen and the director of that film was the son of the actual director of the original film and i remember him seeing an interview sort of saying it was really interesting therapy to be playing my father talking to my young self on film it was great movie you should check that one out Badass with two A's and then five S's is a 2003 American biographical drama film written, produced and directed by and starring Mario Van Peebles, a man whose greatest performance to date for me has been portraying Malcolm X in Ali. The film is based on the struggles of Van Peebles' father, Melvin Van Peebles, played by Mario himself, as he attempts to film and distribute Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. A film that was widely credited with showing Hollywood that a viable African-American audience existed and thus influencing the creation of the blaxploitation genre. Hunter remembered another film after we finished recording, and it pertains to how interests and obsessions can be negative or pausing, or they can create a sense of growth. He wanted to mention Juliet Naked, because the male character in his life is arrested in this obsession to the point that it has harmed his relationship. You pause for breath before googling Juliet at Naked, but it is in fact a 2018 romantic comedy film directed by Jesse Peretz, based on, oh, it's a Nick Hornby, with Rose Byrne, Ethan Hawke, and Chris O'Dowd, X-Men First Class, Moon Knight, and Thor 2, and Hawke would appear to be the subject of IT Crowd's O'Dowd and his longtime music obsession. So if you're a fan of Fever Pitch, About a Boy, High Fidelity, like us, you're going to want to track that one down. Is there a parallel? Maybe I'm drawing a, a bow far too long. Maybe it's because it was so nice to see Mark Hamill on screen. Is there a Luke Skywalker analogy here of Luke's journey is about him becoming a competent individual and essentially taking his father's place, but sort of even sort of moving past his father, right? And becoming a Jedi at the end of Return of the Jedi. It's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Jedi, uh, like my father before me, you know, and then, you know, he's, he's about, you know, moving beyond that. And, and he's of, able to do what Anakin wasn't. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's it's not dissimilar to what you guys were just talking about with James, which is that, you know, he puts on the bear mask and finishes the story and allows himself to develop. He lets Brigsby go, which is something his bunker parents couldn't do. He loves right. Brigsby, but he lets him go. Mm. I think you're onto something though with the whether they intended this or not the casting of Mark Hamill he has such uh, an important place in those of us nerds who grew up with Star Wars being the dominant thing um mm. it, it's almost like Wait a minute my father was Brigsby Bear and Son Snatcher that's not <laughs> true that's impossible <laughs> <laughs> 
because because we see them grow up. Honestly, there's there's an element of this is going to sound incredibly weird, but Leia being like a, a kind of a mum to all of us, and Luke being kind of a dad, especially when they develop into their sequel roles and and are playing themselves so much older. to the point where um, people were hoping to see sweet-natured old granddad and they got old bastard Luke yeah. and they hated it. Yeah, because there's something there you have to reconcile and you just couldn't, could you? Green milk, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> but by by having Mark Hamill in that role, I think it, it does lend it much more weight than it wouldn't have had if it was somebody else. Yeah. And also the fact that Mark Hamill is famed for being able to do voices that you wouldn't expect to be coming out of Mark Hamill. To the point where, you know when he does his Joker voice, when people prompt him to, he hides his face or he turns backwards. He doesn't want people to see Joker's voice coming out of that man. Mm. And uh, again, it's it's bonkers that... uh, he never did any kind, affected any kind of voice or got recognised by James, who is smart and observant. Oh, hang on, that's Dad. I've just realised that in my fourteenth year. Yeah, and if we if you just think about the reunion in the jail, he doesn't go to him with "I've got some things to say to you" and expressing of anger, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's there for a purpose. He's wanting to finish his project. But it's not just like, I need you to do these lines. It's that he's excited to do these lines, to see these lines done, to be part of it. And to, and to like, it's it's not like, oh, I hate this guy, but I'm just going to get him to do it just for, because I've got OCPD and I need to, you know, I need to have it all exact. He's genuine. And in, in the same way that when he goes and sees, uh, is it Whitney? in the uh, diner, um, you know, he wants to see her. It's completing the circle for him on, on an emotional level is what's going on for him. And it's, you know, he's pleased. He goes and sees Whitney. He, he doesn't want anything from her. He's not uh, obsessed by her, you know, creeper, stalker kind of way. He's not trying to hit on her. He doesn't demand anything from her. He does Double. say, I've, uh, I'm in love with you, but in a, in a kind of a matter-of-fact way where he also accepts, even just within his tone of voice, he doesn't expect her to reciprocate. He's just like, well, this is a statement of fact. And I love the fact that they don't. It, like, there's no implication that he will get together with the girl who clumsily goes for him at the party. And, and when he asks, he's but, like, well, you know, I'm fine with doing that again. She's like, oh, no, not at all. But, but they carry on being friends. And neither are ostracized as a result of this tryst. And there's no, at no point does the waitress feel guilted enough to trying to start a romantic relationship with this mm. kid she helped Duke unwittingly. No, I think the closest it gets is she she does do the scene where she kisses Brigsby. Yeah. But that's it. But that's but the she's thing. Kissing she's kissing the, mask, the extension, the bear, not yeah. James. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And then and, and then was it Nina, Nina, her alter ego gets, you know, this. Um, <laughs> yeah, you too, Nina. What was great was Bunker Dad says, I'm interested to see where you took it. Absolutely. He's, paternal he's, pride. He's, he's, it's, it's paternal pride. It's got an echo of um, my favourite bit in, uh, is it Last Jedi? We are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. Um, you know, which is that. So much. And and then Bunga Dad just does the lines, and uh, it's it's 
it's a really interesting moment. It's really, really interesting. Whoa, whoa, wait. I'm going to have to chase you around the Australian garden with a bit of wood unless you... I mean, you have been elaborating on that, but you can't end. Uh, it's really interesting. I think it's really powerful, and I think it could have been very one-dimensional. Mm. And whereas I think this is a film that you guys touched on, on in the first part. This is a film that doesn't go for the easy emotion. It's a film that sits... Um, it straddles a whole lot of different things, right? And and and, and it's earnest is, is was the word that was being used. And so it goes for not unlike adult personality development, we move from a black and white, you know, um, a relatively undeveloped individual who grows and develops nuance and complexity. And that is what the emotion that is really seen in that scene, right? Mm -hmm. It's, the, the, you know, there's the big triumphant scene at the end, right, where everyone's cheering and stuff like that. That's mm -hmm. a pretty basic scene, right? But the, the, the in the prison, that's really interesting. That's, ah, oh, I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that it's complex and that's why it's fascinating. I think a lot of people would brush over it. There you go. That's way better as a substitute for the word interesting. I just think it's really interesting. Because that's the thing. You can't just leave it on that. People are like, yeah, that's interesting. And your job why? was to tell us why. But like, that's the thing. No, you have it. been telling us why. It's, it's only a vocal tick by now. Uh, look, any, any, any of my trainees, trainee psychologists that I, uh, that, that I work with know that I push them to explain mm. and get their clients to explain. Good. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to... Beyond, and my first my first uh, supervisor was British, so you know it's um, <laughs> the, the circles all coming around. Um, oh, I, I've got a question regarding other uh, psych folks. What was Claire Dane's position? This is a question to both of you. What was her position? Social worker, therapist, and how did you feel about her presentation in the film? Personally, I felt like she was being positioned as a social worker initially, especially considering that she talks to the whole family rather than just talking to James yeah. on his own. But I then thought. she's present at the institution that he's placed in. So does she also work there? I, don't, I wasn't entirely sure how that was supposed to be um, supposed to be framed. Yeah, yeah. I wondered, like, I, w I was wondering whether she had admitting rights to this, that 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 uh, mm. that psychiatric. This is where writers of screenplays show their hand regarding not knowing what certain jobs entail Indeed. and what requirements what, what, are there. Psychiatrist, oh, oh. psychologist, therapist, social worker, they're all the same thing, basically. No, they're not! And this is why I ask professionals <laughs> where possible. <laughs> Look, if you don't know what, what we're talking about there, see Shrinks, uh, Two Shrinks Pod episodes, <laughs> Shrinks on Film 1, 2, and 3. Yep. Uh, <laughs> were you in all three of them or just no, one? Just one. Just one. There was, there was, yeah, Sharon guessed on the third one. Um, Come for the Sharon, stay for the others. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, look, I, I just thought that she was a, a psychologist because I guess that's that's my my worldview. I was uncomfortable with her being the one telling him lots of information. Mm. Was that a plot device? Was that just because they couldn't? You know they they needed to cut down on on extra characters, but she told him some important information. You know, if you're doing a family therapy, you'd be getting the parents to perhaps tell some stuff. Mm. She'd be I supervising, but not necessarily directly involved. Mm. Yeah, like the aim of family therapy is to 
provide a space where family members can say important things, right? To help navigate that, right? Because you're, you know, teach a man to fish, they'll, you know, they can fish forever, right? Whereas mm. if, you know, the therapist is always doing the work, then you always need the therapist. You're I mean, making good them for dependent business. on the therapist, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, good for your private practice, but not so good for the um, <laughs> ethics. For, for the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ethics. Yeah. I yes. think what, what, I was not overly keen about with her was the fact that she was taking such a um, a, a black and white position in yeah. terms of what is real and what is not. And she seemed to be trying to impose a concept of reality on James. And really quite quickly, it almost felt like he, he needed to be on his... Like, if we're looking at this from a purely therapeutic point of view rather than from a plot exposition point of view, which, mm. as you say, uh, Hunter, is... is a significant element of what was going on in these scenes. He could have benefited more, I think, from a, a, a solo therapist who had experience in something like cult deprogramming, who was able to give him a more gradual train from this is where you were, this is what you were told, but this is what the rest of the world is like. The story for me as a psychologist is about how social bonds heal people in the most trying of times. Mm. So it is the creating and the developing of bonds, of, of getting out of our heads and to share human connection and shared experiences. It isn't about how much stuff we have or getting the stuff. You know, the parents get their child back, but they're miserable until the bonds are formed. James is scared, worried. Not not about the world at large. That paranoid paranoia recedes, but he's perplexed and worried about people. This changes as he builds connection. His sister too, right? And others he encounters, Eric, the psychiatric patient, Detective Vogel, Spence. This mirrors why therapy works. Yes, there's interventions of, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance commitment therapy or psychodynamic therapy or scheme therapy or, you know, DBT. Or Research shows that 40% of the treatment effect is the relationship you have with your therapist. Once that's, once that's established, the intervention can follow. In this case, the intervention was him making the movie. Right. Over and over, the thing that helps people is human connection. And when I'm teaching my trainee psychologists at the hospital, like, hey, guys, yes, that intervention you're doing, pause that. It's, it's probably right, but you need to go for connection first. Ask them how they are. Get to know them. How many grandkids have they got? What's going on? What's the food like in the hospital? I work in a hospital with medically unwell people. They're sick. They're away from their family. They're scared. They're frustrated. They're sad. Over and over, I'm the one, because it's my job to, who takes the time to learn a person's story and connect. And when that occurs, listeners, the most unbearable of unbearable situations become that much easier to cope with. Right? You can cope with being away from your family, losing function in your body, losing a limb, losing your partner, or even losing your own life if you know you are not alone in that journey. So finding someone who's a you know a therapist, a friend, a family member, a partner, community, all of that heals. Now, all of us, we may not have a clearly triumphant moment like James does, right? But it's worth noting those little triumphant moments when they happen. And also to take risks to share our experience with others peeling back the screen. I keep a folder of cards that my patients have given me. It's a bit hard in telehealth. We don't get them so much anymore. But 
I, I've got it. And I, you know, every now and then I find it and I, and I flick through it and I kind of think about like there's, you know, cards from people who said I meant something to them or that what we did meant something. Every now and then, perhaps not as much as I could, I, I take risks to share achievements with others. I recently completed a, a postgraduate degree and emailed some people and said I did it. And to be honest, that felt pretty scary, right? But if it feels scary to share, it's probably the most helpful. And allowing ourselves to be proud is to grow. And, and to grow is the scariest thing. It's also the most fulfilling. And that's why I love being a psychologist, right? Is I can go on that journey with people. But all of us who are not psychologists can go on that just as friends and family. Wow. Yeah. That Thank was you. fantastic, Hunter. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I felt strongly about it. One of the last things I'm going to uh, say is uh, we watched a uh, piece by Infranaut on how, and you actually mentioned this at the beginning regarding nostalgia, uh, that Brigsby actually kind of represents uh, almost the antithesis of the dredging stuff out of the 80s to repackage it and resell it to people who are feeling wistful for that simpler time. It's it's almost anti-nostalgia insofar as it's a, it's a childlike man deciding, I need to move on. To do this, mm-hmm. I need to do something very childish, but in in the in the taking over of the reins, I also need to illustrate that I know I'm moving on, that I have found. Like he he actually calls the film rather than Brigsby Bear the movie uh, a Brigsby Bear movie that I made with my friends. It's it's the important thing being the friends and the time that Brigsby disappears at the end after going doot, 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 and then just beaming out of his life is when he's being hugged and surrounded by all the new people in his life. It's, it is indicative of a film that encourages us to move on and find uh, a new way of living. And specifically, yeah. as socially as possible, appears to be the, uh, the way forward, even to the obviously very introverted and and that you I, I was left with a feeling of of uh peace and resolution mm. in in a way that you know other films who that would have dealt with this in a you know much more ham-fisted studio uh way mm. perhaps if you know oh it's all wrapped up neatly you know i sequel you, know, you guys are never going to believe this about brigsby bear <laughs> Yeah, the sequel? Question mark. I don't know how he's going to go in the future. He might just be some ordinary guy. That was kind of okay. We've finished the journey. That's the bit that I thought was really interesting. Oh, dear you God. did it again. <laughs> and on that bombshell, folks. Uh, Brigsby Bear at the box office made over $1.3 billion. What am I talking about? Of course it didn't. Because nostalgia is real easy to market and maybe suggesting we should move on from it is really difficult to market. So pre-pandemic in 2017, Brigsby Bear made $681,632. They counted the $2 at the end. Uh, But we are very, very happy to have discovered this through our own listenership. Thank you, Name, for commissioning this and and kind of lighting a fire under us. And we are really, really happy to have been able to bring it to you, fine folks. 
Hunter, thank you very much for uh, for your sizable spot in this one. Uh, is there anything you'd like to pitch or plug or recommend people check out? Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. I, I love coming on the pod and I love talking about these things. Um, so if you've not heard my voice before, I uh, was doing uh, up until um, this year uh, a psychology podcast, um, Two Shrinks Pod, with about 83 episodes where we go deep on psychological disorders and in lots of therapy talk, um, Sharon guested, um, and uh, we did some did some spots where we talked about, you know, diagnosing characters from different movies and things like that check it out um i'm not doing any podcasting at the moment i'd love to get back to it i plan on doing something at some point if someone wants me to guest um uh you can hit me up on twitter at, at real hunter m m m so i think there's three m's anyway um <laughs> the uh um i think i got onto twitter like Pre Donald Trump being a total douche, and well, I mean, um, world changing. You got onto Twitter in 1964. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there, there was a there was a pre presidential Trump anyway, and I thought, oh, that'll be funny. I'll make because he's like real Donald Trump, and I was like, oh, I'll be real Hunter M. That's funny. Oh. Um, yeah. So anyway, your Twitter um, bio name is a Trump joke that hasn't aged. Uh-huh. I don't think it would be. Oh, okay, right. Tell you what, you can now be that's a parody of the real GDT, the Guillermo del Toro Twitter feed. So, yeah, uh, there you yeah. go. You can that's change your brand. Let's <laughs> just we'll wipe that bit and thing. Um, I'm not doing anything online at the moment. Um, I'm very happy to guest on, on anyone who wants me to talk about psychology stuff. Um, and I may, I think I'm looking at, you know, maybe doing really, you know, creating some kind of series in the future on um, some kind of psychological thing because I love doing podcasting. I'm just not able to do it just at the minute. Thank you. Looking forward to what you're able to uh, put together in the future. And uh, we would definitely love to get you back as soon as possible to talk about. We've actually already had various films we've been cooking up. We've just got to find the, the free available space. It's not really so much even finding the time. It's just that everything's all crowded together. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> okay. So, let's move back to Name for the very end. Uh, they sure came out tonight, huh? <laughs> so what's on your mind, pal? It's just... There are other people out there. Just like us, right? And we're all watching Brigsby together. It means something. Look at the grazer bugs, James. All they need in this world is fresh water and cold moonlight to charge their rectoskeletons. They're out there every night, surviving just like us. The difference is... We have dreams and imaginations to help us escape. But no one can take that away from you. Ever. (laughs) Well, I am hard at work on a YouTube video right now. Um, Hopefully it's out by the time that you are listening to this. So you can go over to my YouTube channel, Name the Nerd. And you might be able to watch uh, where MCU phases five and six should go next. 
and I'm I'm really uh, excited to get that out there because I've been <laughs> just working a lot of hours on it. Make sure you post that in the Discord. I want to see it as soon as. Oh, I will. Okay. So we'll be back next week with another commissioned episode. Gravity Falls Season 2. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Briggsby's out. <laughs> <laughs>